Hi, and welcome back to Activists of Tech, the Responsible Tech Podcast. We're living in the age of surveillance. That's a fact, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's been increasingly normalized, and the use of mass surveillance has increased over the past few years. And truly, facial recognition systems did not help in the fight for justice and equality. Fortunately, activists have been advocating at the front line against that kind of use of technology and denounced malpractices, abuses, and worked collectively to create an alternative future where tech is used to empower people and serve them instead of oppress them. To talk about the issues that surveillance brings and how it impacts marginalized communities, Tawana Petty is joining us today. She's a mother, organizer, poet, author, and facilitator, and has been honored with several awards. Tawana is a social justice organizer whose work focuses on racial justice, equity issues, water rights, advocacy, data privacy, and consent. Tawana has been using her talents and gifts for community building to dispel the criminalizing narrative of her city, Detroit, which has convinced many of the need for police surveillance technologies as a mechanism for public safety. And in this episode, she really debunks that statement. She's also the founding director of Petty Propolis, a black woman-led artist incubator and social justice organization that teaches writing and anti-racism workshop and hosts artist retreats. Tawana is an alumni fellow of the Digital Civil Society Lab at Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, the Detroit Equity Action Lab, and Art Matters. She has also been a convening Detroit Digital Justice Coalition member since 2016 and is currently a Just Tech Fellow. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Tawana. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. So you are at a very interesting intersection between art and tech. What brought you to the work you're doing today? You know, I came to this work as, well, I've been an artist since I was seven. I've known I was a poet since I was seven years old. So about 40 years. Um, And I came into like what I call the data justice organizing world um, around 20, maybe 2012, 2013 when I got connected with the Allied Media Projects. And so I started to attend those conferences in Detroit and I got really excited about uh, the media justice work that they were doing. And that led me on to be introduced to the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition and then ultimately Detroit Community Technology Project where I spent several years doing data justice centered work uh, and research work with our data bodies. Uh, and then uh, fast forward on to um, working at uh, Data for Black Lives as National Organizing Director uh, and then Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Algorithmic Justice League. And so now I'm on a Just Tech Fellowship and I'm able to combine birth- both my worlds, like the art, the data justice organizing work, Uh, and think about what some alternative visions could potentially be. Was there a pivotal moment when you thought, okay, poetry and art can really change the world and impact communities, and I'm going to dedicate my time to this? Yeah, to be honest with you, growing up in Detroit uh, for a half century, for my entire life, Detroit has been, has kind of suffered under this like dominant pervasive negative narrative, right? Uh, And I realized the impact that has had on me coming up in Detroit. And so very early on, I committed 
my art and my artistic practice to trying to re-spirit younger people and adults and to try to counter dominant negative narratives. And now if you move forward to today where we're so hyper surveilled and there are so many digital technologies uh, and systems being leveraged against Detroiters, it felt like a natural progression for me to leverage all of my talents to not only challenge dominant narratives, but to use art to create alternative visions and do do that respiriting uh, in this like AI centered world, right? And so, yeah, it to me it was a natural progression. You created a nonprofit called Peripropolis, and one of the goals is to teach poetry as a form of visionary resistance to systems that challenge your dignity, humanity, and civil liberties. What have you been working on in your organization? Yeah, so I do a, a lot of work on uh, deconflating surveillance with safety or pushing back against the conflations of surveillance and safety. And so I teach poetry workshops that have community members thinking about like what it really means to feel safe. Uh, and they create like art and poetry um, and they think about it, it kind of taps into a nostalgia in a way uh, and thinking about situations that make you feel whole and safe and seen and and not watched. And so it's like it, it follows that trajectory again of trying to re-spirit, trying to get us to think about systems that are not mass surveillance systems that create community, that create a, a, a mechanism of feeling safe. Uh, with one another. And so um, so I do a lot of workshops, facilitation. Uh, I participate in town halls and panel discussions, pretty much anything to heighten the awareness of, you know, the situation we're dealing with, of being a super hyper surveilled, very least, you know, not very connected, but super hyper surveilled city and how we can amplify our voices as residents and community members uh, to challenge that notion. But it it really starts with like that education aspect. So there's a lot of political education that has to happen in the community to bring everyone up to speed about what we're dealing with so that we can have some humane alternatives created. So you said that Detroit was not that connected, but hyper shoveled. Did you find that there were any digital challenges that were unique to Detroit? Yeah, so uh, Detroit is about, about 35% of the residents don't have access to broadband internet. And so, you know, I've been uh, a convening member of the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition since 2016. The Detroit Digital Justice Coalition is m about 12 years old. Uh, and one of our members uh, is Detroit Community Technology Project and the Equitable Internet Initiative, which are organizations who have been doing a lot of work in uh, trying to push back and expand the access that our residents have to broadband internet. And so uh, we understand that although a lot of residents don't have access to broadband internet, these systems are still accessing them. And so it doesn't decrease your hyper surveillance just because you don't have access to the internet. It sounds like there is a huge imbalance between ourselves and the citizens and like who travels the citizens of Detroit, actually? Is it like on the city level? Is it the police traveling uh, individuals? You know, there, is in, there are institutions that are surveilling uh, the residents. There are, you know, and it's like a trade-off. It's like, we're doing this so that you can have access to these greater resources and benefits, but it's not always transparent. And a lot of times when residents find out, 
that there's so much data being extracted is so far along, right? Um, and I, I can actually send you a few articles um, that reference some of this stuff so that you uh, can read a bit about it. But um, as well as law enforcement, you know, Detroit, um, we have half of the known cases in the United States, uh, misidentification cases, leveraging uh, facial recognition by law enforcement. Um, and, you know, we have this program called Project Greenlight, which is a mass surveillance program in Detroit, which there are these flashing green lights that are connected to low-income housing, grocery stores, laundromats, uh, schools, um, and other businesses, restaurants that are monitored by police 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not just in their real-time center headquarters, but also their mobile devices. They can watch these cameras from their mobile devices in the comfort of their homes, right? And so there are just, and we have surveillance traffic cameras, we have aerial vehicles all throughout the skies. The city government and law enforcement and a lot of institutions are hyper-surveilling hyper the city. I, I don't know how else to say it, but it sounds like it's a war on the poor. What I hear is that the city is actually surveilling spaces where low-income people go, like the laundromat, for example, and other places that you mentioned where you go when you're low income, like typically, right? Yeah, absolutely. The median household income in Detroit is under $35,000 per year. And so you're looking at half the residents are well below that. They're, you know, below the poverty line. And so, and yes, the neighborhoods that do have that program most prominently are very low income neighborhoods where, you know, some neighborhoods in the city are 100% unemployed. Um, and so, yeah, it really is. It's compounding uh, these quality of life issues uh, and, and violent situation because it dehumanizes residents who are already being dehumanized. So instead of them being seen as full human beings, they're being watched as non-human beings. I'm wondering if a pattern emerged from using poetry as a means for social justice, if a methodology kind of formed with time through educating people, or is each issue that you're trying to address a different process? Yeah, it you know, it's multifaceted. I find that a lot of my workshops, uh, residents don't know half of what I'm teaching in the workshop. So I go over that narrative history of Detroit. Uh, and I use like a lot of evidence from articles and different things in the media that, have, that have been spoken about Detroit. Uh, I have them write about their thoughts. I have them think about times when they felt safe. I have them think about, you know, what are some resources that they think that their neighborhoods might benefit from. And I've rarely ever had a resident say we could benefit from more surveillance, right? They, they name things like more grocery stores, more recreation, uh, you know, just everyday things that you find in suburban, more predominantly white communities that are 15 minutes away from Detroit and, and are considered safer, right? And so a lot of the community members will, you know, take things at face value from city government, from law enforcement. But when you sit them down and you have that person-to-person -person dialogue about what it means to have a safe community, they're talking about quality of life resources. They're talking about affordable water. They're talking about affordable housing. They're talking about access 
to quality foods. They're talking about things that you need to be treated with your full dignity and humanity. They're not talking about aerial drones in the skies or traffic surveillance cameras or facial recognition technology, right? Or militarized policing. They're talking about quality of life resources. So what do your politicians do and say about these demands that are not at all tech-oriented, but literally just demand basic human resources for your city? Well, they always say, we understand that we need those too. So it's always like, we're going to do this thing that you're rejecting, but we also understand you need those other things too. So it's always like an afterthought. And instead of leveraging all these resources that come into the city, like millions of dollars came into the city and we literally had to have a lot of advocacy. Many organizations and residents had to line up at our Detroit city council in different community meetings um, and say, don't use those funds on surveillance, use those funds to, to resource neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, it was a long fought battle and the community won in a sense that we were able to remove those funds from being used for surveillance, but then they just used other funds for the surveillance. But yeah, their, their first line of defense in city government is almost always to increase militarization and surveillance. It's, it's almost like they have no imagination when it comes to thinking about what a viable community could feel and look like, um, one that treats everyone with equal dignity and humanity. And we have to fight for every inch of that um, in the city of Detroit. And I, it's not lost on me that that people, the predominantly Black residents who are lower income are suffering the brunt of that dehumanization. How do they justify spending so much money on surveillance and so much time trying to surveil their own citizens, like the citizens of Detroit. They have to do, they never have to deliver on safety. They just have to promise they're pursuing it. And because surveillance has been so conflated with safety, they don't get as much of a challenge as they should. And the reason is because there are residents who feel unsafe. There are neighborhoods that have been so disinvested in and because of those quality of life issues, there is quality of life crime and they're desperate. They want any they want any type of a solution that can be proposed to make them feel safer. And unfortunately, city governments and law enforcement, they benefit from this fear economy where if the neighbors are afraid of each other, um, then they can throw anything at the wall and say, this is a solution. And unfortunately, despite all the evidence, despite all the research to indicate that surveillance is not a mechanism for safety, this is the direction we're still going in. And if you have desperate residents who have been disinvested in, who are feeling unsafe, they're willing to take anything to feel some measure of security. Do you have examples on how it impacts people mentally just to be traveled 24-7 pretty much once they're outside their home? I can speak for myself as, as someone do. who has. Yeah, I can tell you. I mean, I you know, I have a, a, a higher income than our median household income, thankfully. However, one thing that I've learned is that economics is not a mechanism for safety either. So despite, you know being able to have, you know, more closer to a middle 
middle uh, class, you know, that's diminishing, <laughs> but, but not being on a poverty level income wise, thankfully I've been there, trust me, number of years, but at this present moment, I'm not, but I recognize that I still experience that the psychological impact of looking out of your window and always seeing something, some type of aerial vehicle out in the sky. I have privacy curtains over my windows because I can't peacefully sit and watch television or read a book without something flying past my window. I can't go and shop at a lot of the restaurants and the grocery stores and the laundromats and uh, visit different places in my neighborhood because they're all monitored by Project Greenlight surveillance programs. I went to Whole Foods the other day to buy some food and they wanted my palm prints in exchange for food, right? And so this is Wait, the society. We need, yes. we need to pose here. What? Yes, yes, yes. I took a picture of it. I'm going to send you a picture of the, the thing. So the cashier spent like 10 minutes trying to convince me to give my palm prints in exchange for my groceries. So that's the, that's the society that we're living in right now, where every institution you walk past is capturing your image. It's being run through a facial recognition database. You go into the grocery store, they want your palm print. I mean, it's really super pervasive. It has gotten out of hand. And I feel like I'm closed in. I feel like I'm living in a panopticon where I, everybody is watching. I don't know who all the entities are that are watching me. I don't know what the date, what's being done with the data. It really does. If you don't get a grip on your mental well-being, it has, uh, it can make you feel paranoid, right? Because your face is being scanned. Uh, your they want your palm print. I mean, it's a lot. It really is a lot. And I'm someone who is, you know considered of sound mind and body, uh, spirit. Uh, and, and it really bothers me, um, every day to have to live in that type of society and to feel like there's very little I can do to challenge that. So my solution has been to do these types of workshops and to have these types of narrative shifting programs and events with the community so that we can re-spirit each other. And then you have a groundswell of community members who then will show up at these city government meetings and say, this is not how I want to be treated. I want to be seen. I don't want to be watched. No, I don't want to give my palm print to get an apple out of the grocery store. No, I don't want my face scanned in order to do my laundry. You know what I mean? And so we're, we're in a situation where there's so many trade-offs to having access to basic resources and necessities that we need to, to live and thrive. And they want your biometric data in order to just have everyday access. And it, it's really gotten out of hand. It seems like it's a program where they work together to enforce an ideal of surveillance. Well, I'll say this, the, the grocery store that I'm naming is connected to Amazon, right? So I'm not sure that that particularly, um, who knows, I, you know, we know that they're not going to protect our data from law enforcement or government. Yes. So they may not have a direct connection, but I'm sure that they're not doing anything to protect <laughs> um, our data from being extracted. And, and even so, those companies aren't protecting our data for, from their own nefarious uses. But with regard to the law enforcement access to facial recognition technologies, um, we learned that since 1998, any person in the state of Michigan 
who's taken a driver's license or a state ID had their image fed into a facial recognition database. And we didn't learn that until 2019. So for all those decades, anytime you went to get an ID so that you could drive or get a job, they were funneling it into a police database um, for facial recognition use. And so those connections with the government and law enforcement to create this database have been longstanding and without transparency or accountability to the residents uh, of the city of Detroit or the state of Michigan. And this isn't just a Michigan thing, it's, it's happened in a lot of places where that's the case. What would you say is the biggest hurdle to address to ensure that tech becomes ethical and serves communities rather than participating in their oppression? What I'm experiencing right now, you know, being funneled into this hype cycle of we have no choice but to go into the artificial intelligence future and any person who doesn't is going to be left behind and uh, the doomsday narratives that completely ignore the everyday experiences like the ones I'm naming for you now. Uh, what I'm learning is that we have to continue to fight for the opportunity to live a normal, disconnected from artificial intelligence life. And that is not to say we don't have those options to engage with those systems. Like I'm on a CS, Computer Science for Detroit, steering committee where I want the young people in the city to have access to those tools, should they choose, right? And for them to be ethical and for you know young black students to, to be able to have the same access uh, to these resources technology that a lot of other non-black students have access to. However, I don't want that to be their only defined reality, right? And so some of the respiriting and the, the political education uh, and the teaching and workshops is to try to recapture some of our agency to say our critical thinking is important. Like we have to struggle to keep our minds clear and to not follow every hype cycle, to not let tech companies drive the way we think and to, to, to really tune in to what it means to be human. And if we tune in to what it means to be human, then we'll collectively create a society that honors what it means to be able to refuse a system that is dehumanizing um, and, and abusive. Um, and so that's my goal. It's not that I think that, you know, my workshops, my poetry workshops or any of those things are going to be the ultimate solution to the crises we face. But to me, every time I, I uh, work with a person who says, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Wow, I'm deepening my questions. Wow, I think that I can imagine, you know, this alternative society, then I feel like it's winning, you know, person by person, because that's someone who has information that they didn't previously have. And so The, to me, the solution to dealing with these systems and tech companies that are not transparent and not consentful is to create a situation where community members can think critically for themselves and have all the information that they need to do that. Speaking of community organizing, I feel that if you're a community organizer or, or go through this, this process, this experience, at some point, everyone ends up burnt out or really depressed or there is a right? <laughs> There's a moment yeah. where like, I put all my energy in this and I don't see like the end of the tunnel anymore. How do you make sure that you create a community of care and how do you make sure that you are okay to carry on your work? Oh, I love this question because 
I literally wake up every day if I'm honest and say, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I making this sacrifice? I could go make a whole lot of money and not care what happens. Um, but that's not me, right? I really care about human beings. I really care about the future of our society. And one of the ways that helps me to continue to do this work is because of the poetry, is because of the creativity. I, I co-hosted a workshop the other day where we blew bubbles and ran around the room with streamers uh, dancing, right? And we wrote poetry together. And that might not seem like it's contributing to right, um, backbone people in that workshop. That was the first time they laughed that week. You know what I'm saying? It was the first time they felt joy. Um, and so to me, it's like, if I can carve out those moments, not toxic positivity, where it's like, no matter what's happening in the world, I'm just going to be happy. But no, it's like carving out those moments to take deep breaths and to say, I'm still here and I'm doing the best that I can. And if I can tell myself every day, I'm still here and I'm doing the best that I can, then I can keep going and doing this work. But I'm I'm very human, and there are days where I go. You know what? It's it, it's not worth it today. So today I'm just gonna be with myself, and I'm not gonna do any of that work today. And like currently right now, I'm on a bit of a break, and I say, you know, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna write. If I should choose to post on social media, I'll do that. If I should choose to watch TV, I'm gonna do that. You literally do have to take some time for yourself because otherwise, you're just in trauma and combat mode every day, uh, pushing it back on these harmful systems. And that's not healthy for any of us. You have to you have to take some time to separate yourself from that. But it does get overwhelming. And I, you know, and I ask myself, am I doing enough? Is this is this struggle something I should be participating in? Like, are my contributions valuable enough? I have all those questions on a regular basis. Thank you so much for saying that because it really resonates. And I've been on an activist break for like two years and a half and Tawana, I cannot come back. I try and I don't know how to explain it, but like I get so overwhelmed. I'm like, I can't do this. And I feel so guilty because I'm one of the few who made it out of poverty and who has options. And now if I don't use my power to help my community, I can't live like this and not do anything. But at the same time, when I try, I'm just like, I can't. So like, it's really, yeah. it feels good that you say that. and It's validating. So thank you. I'll, let me let me validate something else for you. What you're doing right now, I when I tell you to me, for me personally, the one of the most powerful weapons that we have in this struggle for our dignity and humanity is narrative shifting. And so you're the podcast you're doing, tremendously important, tremendously important. As someone who has lived in a in a city where media has been weaponized against us mm -hmm. for so many decades, every alternative, every option we have to share our voice um, is important. And so I hope you know that that's a major contribution. You're, you're taking on um, talking about responsible technology and transparency and ethics. Um, and, and we need all of it. We don't have enough. We need all of it. And so, yeah. So anyway, I think it's a benefit. And hopefully Thank you, you so much. You wasn't expecting that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but it really felt good to just meet people who understand and who are not not doing like you know false activism. 
name it in an analogy and just like performative activism and who are actually impacting just doing the work because sometimes i feel like we're also shamed for not doing enough and i'm like i'm at my maximum right now like this yes. is all i can do <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I used to show up at city government meetings every single week, every week. Yeah. Um, And it got to the point where it was like, I'm exhausted. I'm emotionally, physically, and spiritually exhausted. Yeah. And I'll tell you, like, even our board of police commissioners meeting, which is a, the quote unquote civilian oversight body that's supposed to like keep law enforcement accountable with policies and procedures. I would show up to that meeting and I knew no matter how many people I organized to come, no matter, no matter how many complaints we had, they were going to make the same decisions that they were going to make. And it got to the point where it, it was so predictable and you could feel that like votes were like going to be aligned with police, even when it was wrong. And I just said, I, I can't go to that anymore. Like, I can't, if I should, you know, pop in every now and again and give a public comment or write a letter, I'll do that. But I can't be there every week. And then I'll finally say the meeting, which, is, like I said, this is supposed to be the the civilian non-law law enforcement body that's supposed to oversee law enforcement. It's housed inside of police headquarters. Like, it's housed inside of the real-time crime surveillance headquarters. So you have to, as a quote unquote organizer activist, walk into this building that is the headquarters of police. You have to scan your ID, go into a building that's the facial recognition police headquarters building to complain about police. <laughs> so it's like, it's such a, um, it's such a violent situation. And you go through that week after week after week, it has a psychological impact on you. And so, you know, I'll just say again, you have to do the work to take care of yourself. And through this organizing artistic mechanism that I've created for myself, I'm able to build community with more and more people who are thinking with similar values. And, you know, it creates that type of community where you're deepening the questions. You're you're able to, to build the alternatives together with like-minded, like-valued people. And you don't always have to engage with the system that you know is not interested in transforming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of things that I experience as well as just like showing up and I know it's not going to make a difference technically I know it's not going to have an impact but I always think to myself at least I show up and it's in the archive that we showed up and so we, we can inspire the next generation even like younger people who will have the opportunity to maybe do something but it takes right. decades like I'm not gonna see the world I want to see in my lifetime I think but yeah and and I will say this some of the some of the times that I do show up, I also say this, there's going to be audience members or residents there who don't have this information. They're going to get this information because we showed up. And so they'll be educated as well. So, yeah, you're right. Even when we know that the vote or, you know, they're going to vote the way they're going, going to vote. There is 200 people in the audience who who haven't had transparency from city government or law enforcement. And so my showing up or people who are thinking like me who are showing up, we're educating that audience of people who didn't have that information. And so, yeah, so it is an opportunity to politicize the public to our ideology and our um, efforts. And so, yeah, those are opportunities as well.
question about education because everyone is exhausted. Everyone is yeah. overwhelmed. Uh, the people who need the most change are the one with the less resources. What is the best way you would say to educate people or help bring awareness considering that they don't have the time necessarily? You talked about uh, having this workshop where you just run um, with bubbles, which sounds really fun and still like, you know, brought joy and educate people. How can we create those spaces and just make change happen within our communities? Yeah, so um, there are several ways that we do this. So through my work with the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition, we organize what's called Discotechs. Um, and Discotech is short for Discovering Technology. But we also have music, uh, roller skating. We have different tech education stations where we pass out popular education tools like zines. Uh, and we have little miniature workshops. And so we create kind of like a party where community members are coming in and they're having pizza and they're dancing and they're roller skating, but then they're also learning about tech and digital justice um, and data justice. And so that's one way we organize community town halls, organize writing workshops. Uh, we do it all. Like every mechanism that's at my disposal is what I leverage to educate the public. I have one last question. What's your favorite poem? Oh, gosh, what's my favorite poem? You know, I don't have a favorite poem, but I will say um, my the first poem that I remember doing that transformed my life was by Langston Hughes, and it's called I Too Sing America. And it was a poem that I performed in elementary school. Um, and so it's I Too Sing America, for I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll sit at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me then, eat in the kitchen. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. And so that was like the poem that I did like in second grade uh, for like one of our plays. And I was sold, I was sold on poetry after that. I was like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. I want to write this. What do I need to do? Um, and so I've pretty much been writing poetry ever since. And so, yeah, that was the first poem. And, it, and that poem really resonated with me because, you know, I was learning about racial discrimination and things coming up. And I was learning that this young poet was basically saying like, They're saying I'm not worthy, but I'm going to show them that I'm worthy. And once they get to know who I am as a human being, they'll be ashamed that they discriminated against me. Um, and so that was just a powerful, profound message that um, I internalized very early on. That's amazing. Like literally your poem changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. It was my saving grace. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tamana, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.